First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 18. The book of First Samuel chapter 18. We're going to continue on the life of David. The New Testament tells us about him and others whose faith follow. So that's what we're trying to do, follow the faith of a man of God, a man who was a man after God's own heart, and a man also who was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can find many examples of this, and he himself even wrote messianically in the Psalms about his Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Samuel 18 and verse number 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Maholothite for a wife. Verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, Does it seem to you a small thing to become the king's son-in-law? since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king's desire, no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told Saul these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose, went out along with his men, and killed two hundred of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the, skin, to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Verse 30, the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul so that his name was highly esteemed. May the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. I have something to say to you. Do you have somebody in your, your, wife, your life who pretends to care or love for you, but really wants your hurt? Someone that may want to try to trap you or snare you or, or hurt you. You know, it says in Psalm 55, verse 21, that the words of his mouth were as butter, 
but war was in his heart. And boy, does that ever tell us about Saul. His words were smooth as butter, but war was in his heart. We have to be ourselves mindful of people like that, even in our lives, who we may think they're on our side, but they could be an enemy. And they could be setting a snare for us. Maybe somebody in the workplace. Maybe a a neighbor of yours who pretends to be something in front of you, but really behind you. And what his goal is, is really to cause you to stumble or to fall. We have examples like this in the Bible. For instance, Delilah. Delilah. Samson says to her, how can you say you love me and your heart is not with me? You know, Delilah had betrayed Samson. She pretended as if she was a real lover of him, but she ended up giving the secrets of Samson's strength over to the Philistines. Or Jael, who craftily had entertained Sisera, the captain, remember, of the host, brought him into her home and it says she served him a lordly dish and put him to sleep and then had a nail with hammer and put it through his skull. Judas Iscariot, a classic example, who someone seemed to be on the Lord's side, but was ultimately against Him. Those are the kinds of people one needs to be mindful of and watch out for. You would think that David would be aware of a possible trapping, and we might say that David was quite naive that Saul would want to make David his son-in-law, when just soon before this, he shoots a javelin at him to kill him. The next thing we read about is Saul invites him to be a part of his family. Saul had intentions to give him, David that is, his oldest daughter Merib. He was going to give it. He arranged it. He set it up. We have no indications of Merib loving David or David loving her. It was just simply the king who was taking control of this matter and was going to have his daughter marry David. That's not uncommon in the Bible where, and even today to some degree, and it should be, I think, a a proper method to to utilize in our in our marriages, is that the father should have a say in it and should be essentially the one that gives away the daughter to the husband-to-be. Well, the king here, Saul, is the one, yes, Saul, who intended, and we don't know why it changed, other than he probably changed his mind. And these things are swirling around, and David is still seeming to go along with the scheme of, of Saul's. And it's even more ironic by the fact that Saul had needed a champion to fight a champion. He needed somebody in his army who would be courageous and bold enough to go up against the Goliath, the Philistines, so that he could not only destroy Goliath, but they could have a victory over the Philistines. And yet now, he's wanting to find a Philistine to go against David so that David himself would be slain by the Philistines. What a confused person Saul is. What a mixed up man. What a man that had so much given to him, and yet he can't live up to his title. He can't live up to his kingship. Being the first king of Israel, he fails. He is constantly in the background of David's life. Till his death. And even all during that time... 
he still is recognizing Saul as the anointed one. Which is true. Even though the Spirit had been removed from him and had come upon David, you could say, as a substitute, his kingship was still intact. And David respected that. We'll read later where, remember, David even had an opportunity to get revenge against Saul, who was out to kill him. And when he was asleep in the cave, and there was an opportunity for him to stab him to death in his sleep, he chose just to snip off a little piece of his garment. And it says that David's heart smote him because he did that against the Lord's anointed. If David could cut the head of Goliath off, surely he would be able to cut off the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. That probably made David feel like respected. Like you're the champion who went against our enemy champion and got the victory. Now I'm going to put you on the battlefield and I want you to fight the Philistines and bring back a hundred foreskins of theirs. Now David himself, in this chapter says that Jonathan, in the first verse, loved him like he loved his own soul. We mentioned that in the last sermon in the book of 1 Samuel 18. And how he stripped himself of his garments and he surrendered, you could say, his, himself to David in a committal form. And there was a bond there that remained uh, throughout their lifetimes. So we have the love of David by Jonathan. Verse 16, we have the love of David by Israel and Judah. In verse 20, we have the love that Michal loved David. And remember, Michal and Jonathan are brother and sister, correct? The children of Saul. So Saul had two children that were deeply in love with David. Michal's, of course, would have been a romantic love. She's a female. Saul, uh, Jonathan's was that affection for a man of God. He loved David. He loved David's spirit. And there was a recognition, and this is an important word, in verse 14 it says, And the Lord was with him. That's a great thing to have uh, that sort of adjective to describe a person as one who the Lord was with. Now the Lord never leaves us or departs from us. We know that, correct? But nevertheless, there's something about some believers, how they can be viewed as ones who seem to walk with God. They seem to be walking in the Spirit. And I think we could classify that by saying, the Lord is with them. The Lord is with her. In a way that sort of mocks them out as a distinction on how they live. Well, David had that kind of a distinction. Remember, he's classified as a man after God's own heart. And we see some of those characteristics here in the book of Samuel about David's love. How much he was loved because he loved the Lord. How much do we love one another even? I know you love the Lord and I love the Lord. I think the more we love Him, the greater we serve Him. The greater we exhibit that in our lives. How devoted we are to Christ is how much we love the brethren. How much we want to serve. How much we want to give up of our time and our talents and our treasures for the Lord because we love Him. When David heard the news that he was being offered to become the king's son, this was crazy. This is like me be a, a son-in-law 
of the king. I'm going to be incorporated into the royal family. I'm a person of no reputation. My relatives, we are a nobody people. We, we're, we're not of any royal blood of any sort. We're just ordinary people. And I'm going to be brought into the king's family. What a wonderful spirit David exhibits here. He doesn't look at the, the dark side of Saul, but he's looking at it from a divine standpoint. This is the king asking me to be married to his daughter so that I could be brought into, my fa- into his family. So when he says those first three words, Who am I? Who am I? I think we sing a song. Don't we join with those words, Who am I? Who am I? I wonder if it comes right from 1 Samuel 18. Who am I that I should have this luxury, this pleasure, this prestige, this incorporation into the family? It was something that struck him. Who are my relatives that I should be son-in-law to the king? Verse 18. What does being a child of the king mean to you? How meaningful is it to you to be a child of God? I don't know if we think about this that often. When I was first saved, you know, like Brother Caleb talked about, and this is often the case, we get saved, we don't really know what hit us in a way. Sometimes it takes time to sort of, I don't want to maybe put it this way, figure it out, but as time passes and as circumstances of life begin to rise in our lives, we begin to have our eyes open more and more and more. And spiritual things become more of a reality sometimes. And we didn't realize it. I remember when I was, I was saved a couple of months. And it's from Isaiah 53, 5. You've heard my testimony. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our... In that day, of February 1st, 1975, God opened my eyes to, to believe that Jesus died as my personal substitute on the cross. Which shocked me that I could be loved that much that He would personally take my place, my sins, and bear the punishment of it. And that was wonderful news, and it radically changed my life from that point on. But I didn't understand everything instantly. You know, we're told in the Bible to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Well, a couple of months later, I was invited to a a picnic with some of the church folks over a family's home. And uh, I always loved to gather wherever the Christians were gathering for fellowship. And I met an old sister, a Scottish woman, uh, who um, had been introduced to me. And she had said to me these words. She says, Gary, when did you see the blood? And I was like, ooh, the blood. When did you see the blood? It just, again, amplified the atoning work of Christ on my behalf. And it deepened my appreciation for the Lord. And the blood became more and more precious to me. As That was a starting point. That's something that sort of catapulted me into thinking more intensely about what Jesus undertook at the cross. Then I began to understand Exodus chapter 12. When I see the blood, I will pass over you that was sprinkled on the upper doorpost and the two side posts. We have the gospel, brothers and sisters. The blood is applied to us. Jesus' blood was shed for our sins, for the remission of my sins. And I ought to be grateful for that. Brother, when did you see the blood? Sister, when did you see the blood? A preacher was uh, involved in a series of tent meetings uh, back, I think it was in Maine or in Canada, 
and things weren't going so well, it didn't seem, and the, the, uh, the gospel services seemed rather dry, nothing seemed to be happening. Then one preacher, there were two preachers that were preaching, he says, brother, you know what, we, we, what we've got to do? We've got to turn on the blood. We've got to turn on the blood. In other words, we have to preach Christ and Him crucified. How important it is that we understand the precious blood of the Lamb of God. Another thing too, when I was a young believer, uh, and I'm sure this happens to all of us, the more we read the Word, the more we discover things that we didn't know before. I'm sure you're like me too, you come across a verse that you probably read ten times before, but then it just seems to jump off the pages. And it's like, wow, I never saw that before. Well, the verse that really hit me, too, as a young believer, this summer after I was saved, was 1 John 3, 1. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Therefore shall we be called the children of God. I thought, wow, I'm called by God a child of His. What a high honor and privilege it is, brothers and sisters, to be in the family of God. Not to be in Sovereign Grace Chapel, not to be in a particular denomination or a church or even a, a personal family, but what a privilege it is to be in the blood-bought family of God. Now, David, to get into the family, it's not just like, okay, we're going to bring you on board. There was a requirement put before David. This is what's called the bride's price. The father would place this upon uh, his future son-in-law. It's, in a way, a way of testing to the son-in-law-to-be if he's really, really anxious, desirous, and sacrificial enough that he's willing to come up with the bride's price. And I believe Saul knew the kind of character that David had. It wouldn't have been a surprise for Saul to have heard that David had said, Who am I? Who am I that I should be a son-in-law to the king? So he knew that there would be an enthusiasm on David's part to become a part of the royal family. But of course the trap was this. You have to go out and kill a killed. Essentially, that's what it was. These men weren't going to volunteer their foreskins to David. Oh, you're going to get married? Here, I'll give you my foreskin. Not at all. It's obvious the only way these were going to be had was by the death of the Philistines. Which was an amazing task for one man to have the chore of going after all these Philistines, killing a hundred of them, and then taking this body pot from them. Remember when David had slain Goliath. What did he take from Goliath as a trophy of his victory? Remember? His head. He cut his head off. They did the same thing with Saul when he died. They took his body and they put it up on, a, on the wall. Taking body parts from others was a symbol of having destroyed or had victory over the enemy. So Saul gave him a task that seems to be impossible to accomplish. It was truly a mission impossible. Go out and get a hundred foreskins and you'll have my wife. You'll have my daughter to be your wife. Now Saul knew that she loved him. 
And I'm sure there was an affection that David experienced. It wasn't only the king's command. It was also the drawing affection of Michal towards him. We have no indications that Merab, the oldest daughter, had any interest in David. No affection is referred to whatsoever. But in this case, Michal loved him. David's desire, as I'm saying, it was not merely to be a part of the royal family, but also to be joined to Michal. And we, as we read on in the Scriptures, we find how much he did apparently love her. So the cost to get her was going to be high. We read this morning in the book of Hebrews 13, our brother Ethan read it, Matthew 13, where Jesus talks about the parables of the kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven is like unto a treasure hid in a field. That when, the, when it's recognized that there's a treasure in a field, he sells everything that he has so that he can obtain the treasure in the field. The second one is similar about the pearl of great price. He sells everything that he has so that he can get that one pearl. That's what you could say is the cost for discipleship. You know, when we present the gospel, we can't, we can't present it cheaply. The easy believism, ask Jesus into your heart, methodology of conversion, is such a sham. It produces false converts. I heard a brother once say, a, re- a gospel without repentance is not a gospel at all. You'll have false converts when you preach a gospel without repentance. Repentance is a strong word, and it's the word that's used at the outset of the preaching of the kingdom of God from John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Himself. When Jesus sends out His disciples, He sent them out by two and two in saying that men should repent. Peter's first sermon in Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, what shall we do? First words that come out of Peter's mouth is repent. Repentance is a sobering thing. A brother had uh, emailed me recently. He's, he's taking courses in the seminary. And he said, Brother, give me a good verse for a definition of repentance. Think about it. I gave him a verse. I don't remember what it was because I had to do it real quick. And then I thought a little longer afterwards about it. And this was the verse that I sent. What verse did I send? <laughs> I didn't get to bed too early last night. Now, the verse that I sent was, this was it, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he's near. This is it. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to God and to the Lord for he will abundantly pardon. Let him, what? Abandon his thoughts. Let the wicked abandon his wicked thoughts and the unrighteous man his ways. That's what genuine repentance is. David was willing to do whatever it takes to be in the kingdom, if I can put it that way. What does it cost us? What did it cost us? Well, we know repentance is not a work. It's not something that we show God and say, okay, I repent and now you give this to me. We know it's God who works repentance in us and generates within us the desire to be humble. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Repentance produces humility. 
Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Jesus says, he that exalts himself will be abased, but he that humbles himself will be exalted. A humbling is a repentant spirit. A discipleship desire to follow Jesus. Wherever you go, I will follow. Remember that in the book of Ruth? Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. That's how it should be for someone who's going to follow the Lord. A willingness to do what He desires for us to do, and that is to repent, take up your cross daily, and follow me. I wonder how many of us really know the, 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 the depths of those, those sayings when Jesus talks about taking up the cross and following Him and what that does mean to follow Him. Oh, Mikkel loved him. She loved him. For some reason, though, we wonder why David didn't look beyond his wife and see the danger that was ahead of him. Didn't see the plot that Saul had. Remember, he's expecting that he's going to die by the hand of the Philistines. What a crude character Saul is wanting to put him to death. Interestingly, David puts Uriah on the front line to be slain when he wants to cover up for his sin. Saul is miserable. He's in a state of chaos. His, his kingly uh, rule and prestige is falling apart. People are turning their eyes away from him. They're being turned on to David. David is losing, I mean, Saul is losing his status. And now he's desperate. And what he believes is he has to get David out of the way. If he's going to establish his prestige among the people, he's got to get rid of his rival, even though David had not one thought of trying to compete with Saul. Even though the Spirit was upon him and not on Saul, he still recognizes Saul's kingship and that he recognizes himself as still a servant. He's willing to pay the bride's price for Mikkel. Our Lord Jesus, think of what it cost him. What did God say, in a sense, to the Son, in order for me to give you a bride, this is what has to be done. Do you ever think of it that way? We become the bride of Christ. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her that He may present her to Himself as a chaste virgin and so on. We become the bride of Christ. But for the Lord Jesus to be able to take this woman to be His bride, He had to, in Gethsemane, drink of the cup that the Father had given Him to drink. And what did that cup contain? We hear it all the time, the judgment due to our sin. David thought, I want, I want that woman to be my bride. I want to obey, and, and I believe this is involved in Christ's action. We always think that Christ died for my sins. And we praise God for that. But think of it this way too. Not only did David love Michal, but he loved to be obedient to the king. To the orders that were given to him. Jesus demonstrated that He loved the Father. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. That's what you call real servanthood. 
That's what you call real commitment. One that's willing to do what he's told to do. And at the same time, he looked at us. He looked down the channels of time and he saw you and I, brother. We would be a part of the composition of his bride. That he was willing to go to the cross and suffer the judgment of God for the penalty of our sins. That's all we can do is say, Hallelujah, what a Savior. What did it require of you to become one of the children of God? Have you ever repented of your sins? Have you ever felt guilt for what you've done against God? Against Him and Him only have you sinned. It's not what you've done in society or in your family or towards an individual person or two. It's sin against God. They're heinous. They're wicked. They deserve judgment from God. What sinner can thou do? Where sinner can thou fly? Eternal wrath hangs over thy head and judgment lingers nigh. For God must visit sin with His displeasure sore. For God is holy, just, and true and righteous evermore. What can we do? The hymn writer said, Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Hallelujah. That's what believers do. When they get repentance from God, they believe the Gospel and they fly to the cross and say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I do believe, I will believe that You died for me and paid the punishment of my sins. And once we get saved, this goes back to sort of what our brother was sharing about Growing in the faith, maturing, learning. When we fall, we get up. We don't turn back because there's nowhere to go. A real believer doesn't want to go back in the world because there's no satisfaction back there. There's no joy. There's no peace. And those people are not my, they're not God's people. Therefore, they're not my people. I want to be associated with the people of God. And I'm not saying that we divorce ourselves from the world or that we isolate ourselves from from our co-workers. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that our preference of who we want to associate with are the people of God. And when we are with the unconverted, yes, there's a degree of uncomfortability that we should all have, but at the same time, we might be able to sprinkle some salt in front of them by the way in which we live, the joy and the peace that we have, that they can see a difference. Why are you the way you are? It's because God changed my heart, changed my life. I wouldn't be like this. I'd be a being blankety-blank-blank if it wasn't for the mercies and goodness of God to me and to you. The Bible says, but after that, the love of God appears. And the verse before that says, for we ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers, lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what we were before our conversion. All of the seeds of those kinds of sins were in us. Some more exhibitable than others, but nevertheless they were there latently or overtly. The next verse says, but after that, the love of God, our Savior, appeared. And when the love of God rushes into your heart, our brother was reading that in Romans chapter 5, that he gives the Spirit of God within us, it wells up within us to enable us to cry, Abba, Father. And there should be also an exhibition of that as we demonstrate that we are the light of the world filling as it were, the shoes of the Lord Jesus. I love the words of the hymn writer who put it this way, and I think this is one of the finest hymns as far as consecration to the Lord. Commitment. David was a man of commitment, a man of his word. He did what he was told to do, and even beyond that, he was told to take 
a hundred foreskins. And what does he do? He doubles it and produces two hundred foreskins. You would have thought that doing something like that would have crushed Saul. That Saul would have said, I can't touch this man. He's the Lord's anointed. The Lord is with him. It says that, it, that he delighted in him. That David, excuse me, Saul delighted in him. And all, servant, all Saul's servants loved him. But something underneath the surface was there with Saul that came out from time to time against David. He recognizes his spirituality. He sees that the Lord is with him. And that touches him. But not enough to overcome that fleshly animosity of jealousy that he had from the outset that he can't seem to rid himself from and give room to a man like David in his life and in his kingdom. His only thought is that he must put him to death. He didn't want to have the blood on his hands, so he says, I'm going to put him in the hands of the Philistines, let them kill him, and my conscience will be clean. And obviously that didn't happen. The plan fell through. David produces not one, but 200 foreskins, and therefore he's entitled to be married to Michal, and that's who he becomes married to. What a price the Lord paid for us. Not 100, but 200. He went all the way. He went beyond what would be expected, if you will, of Him. So that He could show the degree of love is beyond expectation. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That so loved is demonstrated by the love and commitment that our Lord Jesus showed for us. And we too ought to then, in return to Him, Give our hearts, our life, our all. Like the hymn writer says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for Thee. Take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. I think we find in David a man of commitment. A man who we could say was very naive, but nevertheless, these are the orders of the king. I have the opportunity to be married into the family of the king, whatever it costs. There's a treasure in the field, whatever it costs. There's a pearl of great price. I'll sell all that I have for that. That's how we should be, brothers and sisters, in our obedience to the Lord. I desire to want to follow. I desire to want to live for Him. We are children of the King. What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. What manner of love. It's, it's inexplicable how we who were vile, guilty sinners could be brought up out of a horrible pit, out of a miry clay, that we could be set on a royal throne with the King of glory, seated with Him in the heavenly place, 
in Christ Jesus. Oh, the New Testament emphasizes so much the exaltation that we have in our belonging to Christ and what He's lifted us from. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Do we appreciate this? I hope we do. Let's be reminded that we are children of the King. We're in the royal family. We belong to heaven. That's where our citizenship belongs. And you know, the bride's price was paid by the Lord Jesus for us. When we didn't even love Him. We were enemies of His. And yet He still was willing to pay the price so that we could be brought into the royal family. So when Jesus rises from the dead and He says to His disciples, this is, these are phenomenal words, I'm going to my God and to your God. I'm going to my Father and to your Father. Just think of it. Jesus alone rightfully can call God Father and now He has a whole family that He incorporates into the, His own body and says, now you have this privilege to be able to call God your God and your Father. That's what distinguishes us from Christendom. When we really believe the Gospel, we can say, like Mary says, where have you laid my Lord? My Lord? Thomas says, when the hands of Jesus was turned over, my Lord and my God. I'm going to my God and to your God. To my Father and to your Father. That's personal relationship. We didn't have that until we got saved, Caleb. You brought up in a Christian home. Many others here may have been the same. I kind of was a part, definitely a part of Christendom. I said the Lord's Prayer. I, I read prayers. I, I read liturgy books. I, I read this. I, I didn't have a personal relationship with Him. I couldn't say, my Lord and my God. I couldn't say, my Father. Until Christ came into our life. My life, your life. Now we can... It's personalized. That's the amazing thing about the Gospel. What it does, it personalizes salvation for individuals for whom the Lord has a desire to ransom. And when we come into the family of God, we step into the royal palace. We belong to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What a household we've been brought into. Is there any price that the Lord would put on us as children of the King that would be too high to pay? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my feet and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. We should think of ourselves as servants of the King in wanting to do whatsoever He willed. If you've never obeyed the Gospel, anybody here, some of you, matter of fact, we had a gal in our mission team, her husband had professed to be a Christian for 28 years. He had gone on 20, almost 20 mission trips on this team uh, in, in, the, in the spring, in the winter time with his wife for 28 years. He was a part of the team. The brother that was my roommate, I told him, I said, you know, uh, Frank just recently got saved. He says, what? He wasn't saved before? He says, no. I said, no. I got to talk to him recently and he says, brother, for, for 28 years, I was faking it to make it. I didn't, I didn't have a personal relationship with Christ. I deep down knew it, but I thought I could kind of just tag along and fit in. And at times I thought I was a Christian and I, 
I, I made like I was, but I really wasn't inwardly. And my wife would tell you the things that I did and the way I acted. It was despicable. I didn't belong to Christ at all. But now I'm saved. And what a difference! You might be somebody like that too, that has a profession of faith. We need to be honest with God. This is not something I want to disguise. What, what, for what's the hope of the hypocrite? Though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul. If it takes humility to get right with God, it's worth it. Because you become part of the royal family. If you're not, you're in only the other family that exists. No servant can serve two masses. He will either love the one and hate the other, or else he will despise hold to the one and despise the other. There's only two families. The family of the king of kings or the family of the king of the abyss, Apollyon. I hope we have a body of genuine people of God who have genuinely repented towards God, put faith in Lord Jesus, are now in the kingly family of God. That's something that we should praise Him for. If you are not, might you take advantage of a message like this to say, I have never repented towards God. I have never been honest with God about my sins. This is an ideal time for me to bow my head and say, Lord, save my soul. Open my heart to the Gospel that I might have that assurance that I belong to You, that I'm saved. I don't want to fool myself. I don't want to think myself to be something when I don't have a relationship with Christ. I was at a conference a few years back, and I remember some of you might have been there, but that really struck me when he said, and the place was packed, he says, and it was quiet. He says, can you imagine if Jesus came right down the aisle, walked right down in front, and he turned around, and he looked at the audience, and he looked at you. What would your response be to that? Could you look at him and say, my Lord! My God! Or would you look at him as if he's some austere character that you don't have any full, sure relationship with? It's a good question to ask yourself. If Jesus stood right before you today, how would you respond? Would you want to, like Mary, want to embrace him? Or would you want to shy away from him? Because there's some, something's missing there. That's what it was for me for 23 years. There was that blockage. I couldn't penetrate it. The Spirit had not yet fully moved in my heart enough so that I could say, He's my Lord. He's my God. He died in my room instead. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Let's close in prayer, brothers and sisters. Father, thank You for the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for being obedient to the request that you gave to him. And that was the bitter cup that had to be drunk for us, O oh Lord. David had to capture hundreds of Philistines to provide a bride's price for the wife to be Michal. Lord Jesus, when we think of what you had in your commissioning to have to accomplish so that you could obtain us, the bride. Lord Jesus, we humbly bow before you. Thank you for being our true and final King David who loved us to this degree. And Lord, if there's anybody in the room, Father, that doesn't know you, 
we ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to move in their heart and give them a wake-up call, Lord, that they might say, I I don't think I'm saved. I don't know you, Lord. I, I don't believe that I really have genuinely repented towards you. May you give them repentance, Lord, young or old, whoever that is. Lord, we don't want to... We don't want to fool ourselves. We don't want to fool others. Oh, Lord, open up hearts. Grant grace to those that don't know you, we pray, as we give you praise and worship in Jesus' precious and worthy name. Amen.